You are listening to the 9 a.m. Sunday School class led by Pastor Greg Voorhees, Shenandoah Valley Baptist Church, on Sunday, August 27, 2023. For more information about SVBC, you can visit their website, svbcfamily.com, or find them on all things social at svbcfamily. Good morning. So, did everybody enjoy their vacation from me last week? <laughs> Maybe he probably actually got out on time. <laughs> Let's come to the Lord in prayer, and we'll we'll pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Father, I just thank you for this day. God, I ask that your will be done in this place. God, I ask that as we continue to look at this your your lesson here in this chosen Bible study to continue to reveal your truth to us. God, use us, to, as I've always prayed, to continually to make us more and more in the likeness of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty. So, if I recall correctly, when we left off, we were looking at the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant on 98. But over in 99, let's just look at some of this, this writing in teal. You know, what exactly is a covenant? A covenant is a formal, solemn, binding agreement. So when, when we talk about God making covenants with his people or making covenants with us, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a binding agreement between God and us. You know, and, and, that's, and we looked at the thing with Abraham. I think we talked about it two weeks ago. You know, why... Yeah. Uh, first of all, when, when people would make covenants in, in, in the Bible, they would make sacrifices, they chopped them up in pieces and, and put them in different piles, and they would walk arm in arm through the piles. And, and uh, essentially, it was the, the idea was, uh, not only was the covenant sealed in, with, in, literally in blood, that if you violated or broke that covenant, uh, you could be no better off than the animals that you were walking through. So, I, I mean... The, the person who, who broke the covenant, the other person would have the legal right to actually take their life. Uh, I mean, so never, ever, ever has a covenant been a light thing, even among people. He, you know, God took this covenant stuff very serious. But it's, but it's, a, it's a binding thing. It's, it's, a, it's a legal agreement. The, the, and the thing that we looked at with, with some of the covenants that God has made some of them, they, they had conditions. You know, we looked at unconditional. Actually, let's read that. The rest of these, and we'll get into that. Unconditional is, is, is an absolute, not qualified, or, or limited. Conditional is subject to requirements being met. So some of the, these covenants that God made, they, they, they were conditional. If you do this, I will do that. And, and God actually... Uh, he he always held up his side of the bargain. Every time his people cried out to him and repented, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. God's never God's never broken any covenant that he's made. However, there was one covenant that was that was absolutely there was no conditions to it whatsoever. Which one was that? Well, yeah, the new covenant of the Old Testament ones. Let me be a little more clear. Between the, his covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David, 
which one was absolutely had no conditions to it? Abraham. Because think about how was that even demonstrated that, that God was going to hold up his end of the of, of the, the entire covenant. It was he, he had Abraham prepare the animals. He, he did the sacrifices, did the piles, and everything. But did God and Abraham walk arm in arm through that pile of you know animal parts? He did not. God calls Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and God himself walked through the pile. So what, so essentially what God was saying is, this is a covenant that the whole thing stands on me. You, you, you know, so when we talk about the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, that, that's a pretty significant thing, because it's the only time you see God say, I'm whole, it's the whole thing until we get to the new covenant, of all the covenants in the Old Testament, this is the only one where he says, the whole thing is on me. And did God ever let the Hebrew people down? Did he do everything he said he was going to do? He absolutely did. He, he, he gave offspring to a, a, a very old man and his barren wife. He, he actually multiplied them into a, a, a great people that outnumbered the stars. Everything, all these impossible things God has done, he held up his end of the bargain. He, he, he also, in, in this covenant, he promised to bless all people through this, 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 this people. Well, how did he do that? How did God bless everyone through the Jewish people? Jesus. God kept up his end of the bargain. He blessed all of creation by sending his son. He held up his, his covenant with Abraham by sending Jesus. It was all, it was all on, on, on God's shoulders. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit delivered. They, they, they just did. So God, I've talked a lot over the last year about God being a covenant maker and a promise maker and the fact that he's never, ever, ever let anybody down. And, and he hasn't. Every time he said that, he, and again, like I just said, if you repent, if you pray, you know, I'll, I'll come, he, he has come to their rescue. He, you know, they, they, they ignored him and, and, and the Hebrew people ignored him and, and kept turning to false gods and did all these things. They even went off to exile. But what happened? They returned to God. What did he do? He brought them back. And as of, forgive me I'm, if I get this date wrong, was it 1946? Israel became an official recognized state in this, in this world. 48. So this, so God, I'm talking, he's keeping promises from, from thousands of years ago. He's still fulfilling them, even, even within, you know, our last century. You know, he's, he's that kind of God. He, he just is. So the Mosaic Covenant made clear the need for Jesus to do what we could never do ourselves, which means a new covenant was never plan B. It was always plan A. Jesus was always plan A. I have fallen into this. I came to this conclusion myself long before I read this in this book because that was, that was one of the errors that, that I had taught for so long. 
and, and, and after I reevaluate, always reevaluate what you believe. Always reevaluate what you teach. <laughs> because if everybody was always right, we'd all be Jesus. You know, so always, always, always be evaluating. So the, the thing that I taught for many, many years was that God had this plan A. He, you know, Garden of Eden, Eden, you know, living, living forever in this happy place, and, and then Satan kind of screwed the whole thing up, and he went to plan B. We see a scripture that says that Jesus was, late, was slain before the foundations of the earth were laid. You know, what does that mean? It means Jesus was always plan A. God, when he, when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and told them, they're saying, hey, this is the perfect place. It's all yours. Just don't do this one thing. He knew it was going to happen. He had already had the, the, the Jesus escape plan built in because he knew what was going to happen. Jesus has always been plan A. You, you know, that, that, that's, and the beautiful thing about the way God orchestrated Jesus' plan A he, he created a, a situation, and even though we, had, we, we, we have to wrestle with this sin and death thing and this, all the stuff that kind of happens here, he, he needed to, for, to have a people who would choose him. He had to give us that, that, that free will, that stuff I've talked a lot about, the ability to choose him. And he knew any time that you give a human being the ability to choose, at some point they're going to choose the wrong thing. He knew that. You know, he didn't, he didn't create us to be robots. He created us to be thinking, learning people to make decisions. And he knew that we would make wrong decisions. And that's why Jesus was always plan A. He, you know, and, and, and the really cool thing about Jesus' plan A is the path that we take to get to heaven. It is one that is absolutely a gift that we cannot earn. Why? Because Jesus was plan A. Us making it on our own was never plan A. It was never plan A. Your salvation is an absolute gift. So when, when you cry out to Jesus, Jesus, I, I, I need you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. It's almost like the Abraham thing happening all over again with, with, with the covenant where, where God goes down and walks through the, the sacrifices himself because he's making a covenant with Abraham that only he, could, he com could completely hold up. When we engage in a relationship with Jesus, it's almost like the same thing. It's the sacrifice of Christ and the work of Christ who has it's put in, into, a, into motion a, a, a plan where only God could uphold or, or seal us through that last day through the sacrifice of Christ. That's, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He, you know, just like God knew Abraham was going to drop the ball, he, they knew that we would drop the ball too. So even in the new covenant, it was, it was dependent on the work of Christ and not the work of us. You know, because if we could make it on our own, you know, what's Paul talk about? You, you know, heck, if I can make it myself, I could, I could boast in my own, my own work. You know, hey, look what I did. You know, I, I, I made it. I'm, I'm, I could do all this thing. I, could, I did it. I made it. You can't because your salvation is dependent 100% on Jesus. It just is. Jesus said, I'm, and here's, here's, one of my, here's one of my scriptures I throw out all the time. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Why is that? Because there's no other way to get there. There's no other way to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and, and your salvation is, is, is hangs on the shoulders of Christ and not your own works. Now that's what's really cool about an unconditional an unconditional covenant, one that it doesn't require really anything of you. And I guess you could even argue that technically the new covenant is a, a conditional covenant because you have to choose. So that would be the only condition in the new covenant is that you have to choose Christ. You, you know, everything else, it's all on him. Which I'm glad because if it was all on me, I'd be in trouble. I just would be. I mean, I made a New Year's resolution a few years ago. That's when I was young and dumb and thought I could do something like this. I made a New Year's resolution. I was going to go a whole year without sinning. I made it to January 2nd. You, you know, it just and I may not have even made it that far. That's just when I realized I dropped the ball. You know, <laughs> you, know you know. So that's 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 the beautiful thing about that's the beautiful thing about Christ. So looking at some of these questions, actually, let's. Well, we're not actually on, on, on three. We're not actually going to read Jeremiah 31, 31 through thirty-four, but because you're going to know the answer to this. If we read that, it says in the Mosaic Covenant, God wrote His law, the Ten Commandments, on two stone tablets. In the New Covenant, what does God write His law on? Your hearts. That's what's that. That's what's in that Jeremiah passage. That God was going to write His law on your hearts. And I tell you what, that's a little bit closer to your very existence than, than a couple of stone tablets. It, that's, that runs deeper in your life than, than having a couple of stone tablets. And do we see, do we see the evidence of, of, of God doing this? If you see change in a believer, we know it's because not only because of their relationship with Christ, but we know that the Holy Spirit now lives in them and the Holy Spirit is helping them. But, but what does the Holy Spirit use as, as, the, as the guide of, of what you do as being right or wrong? It's, it's that law that is written in your heart. When you do something wrong, this is something way deeper than conscience. People try to chalk this up as a conscience thing. Well, that offended my conscience. You can't, you, you can't let your conscience guide you. You have to let truth guide you. So, so when you feel that you have offended God's law in some way, why, why is that? Why is that? Why do you feel that? It's because when you've become a follower of Christ, that law is is written on your heart. So, when when, when you're going to the left or to the right, your heart is telling you. The, the, the law that is written on your heart is telling you, you know, you're, you're, you're messing up here. You, you know, and that's what was so cool about having the law written on my heart. You, you know, in fact, there was this, this there's another passage that, 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 actually, it's the same passage. That's what happens when I don't, don't, don't read it. The, the uh, God talks about how he was going to take your, your heart of stone and, and he was going to give you a heart of flesh. You know, what, that, that, was, that was his promise of the new covenant. Think about this stone-flesh connection here. You, you, you know, the, the tablets were stone before Christ. Your hearts are like stone. You, you know, but the real change happens 
when it becomes internal. The real change happens was when what's written on those tablets becomes written in your life. And, and we need the Holy Spirit to, to really help us to, to follow that law. And, and, you know, even the thing with the law, I've talked a lot about that lately. You know, God's, God's law is pretty simple. You don't have to be... You don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand God's law. It's contained in the Ten Commandments. It really is. If you do everything that's in the Ten Commandments, you're covered. But Jesus made it even easier. Jesus, Jesus made it so much easier. And again, I've talked about this, but it applies here. What we had these, the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to, you know, hang him up. And so one of the smarty pants ones came up with this saying, hey, hey, Rabbi, you know, what's, what's the greatest commandment? You know, and he, he quoted the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. And he didn't leave it at that. He said, I'll tell you what. And the second is kind of like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because within these two things, all the laws and the prophets are contained in these two things. But Jesus made it even easier. So as long as you are loving God and loving people the way God wants you to love people, your heart's going to be okay. You're not going to be violating that, that, that law that's written on your heart. And it's pretty simple. Love God, love people. But when you're not loving God, or loving people the way you should, do you ever feel disconnected or do you feel turmoil inside, inside your heart? That's usually a sign that there's something wrong. That's usually a sign that there's some violation of that law going on. So, so if you feel that turmoil, I'll tell you a good place to start looking. How are you treating God and how are you treating others? You, you know, that's, that has a lot to do. That has a lot to do with this this, this new covenant thing, it, it being written on our law, or written the, the being written on our hearts and not just on stone. Let's look at ninety nine. Continue ninety nine inside out. This is as Jesus was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, and behold, some um, were bringing a a bed, and some were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles and into the midst before Jesus. Just try to get a picture of this in your head. The Chosen did a really good, good, did a really good thing of showing what that would kind of look like. But they bring their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. Why, why in the world were they bringing a paral their paralyzed buddy to Jesus? Because they, re they recognized that if, if anybody could fix his problem, <laughs> it was Jesus. And how convinced were they that Jesus could fix this guy's problem? So they bring him on his bed. Who knows how far they carried him? Uh, I mean, that, they may have carried this guy for miles, for all I know, which to me takes a lot of dedication. They get there. They can't get anywhere close to Jesus. I mean, Jesus drew crowds. I mean, he just did. Jesus drew crowds. So they come up with a solution. They go up on the roof, you know, and they became the insurance adjuster nightmare. They start ripping this person's roof apart, and they lowering down 
right there in, in, in the midst of Jesus, right there in front of Jesus. Is that faith? That's a lot of faith. I, I mean, I've seen, I've, I've, seen, I've seen some crazy things, but I'll, t- I'll tell you what, the, the kind of the faith that these folks had blesses my heart. The fact that they would carry their buddy for God knows how far. They get there and they can't get to him. They tear parts of the roof off. And mind you, it wasn't a roof like theirs. It's not like they need the jackhammer. But it was still, it was somebody's house. And they're like pulling this thing and, you know, to put Jesus down. That, that's faith. That's, that's, that's a group of people who understood who Jesus is. And when, they, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let's stop there for a second. There's a reason that's underlined. The Pharisees and the scribes were questioning Jesus, who do you think you are? Only God can forgive sins. So what does he do here? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He is telling them. Again, this goes back to that thing with Daniel, that vision of Daniel. He saw a vision of the God was a likeness of a God and likeness of the likeness of a man. Jesus' favorite name for himself. He called himself the Son of Man more than anything else. It's referring back to this thing in Daniel. Jesus was saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, he was, a, he was saying, I'm deity. He was saying, he was, he was telling them his connection with, with the Father. And he was saying that the, he has authority to forgive sins. I'll tell you what, that, that, that would have been, in, in their culture, that would have been enough to be dragged out in the street and be stoned right there. You know, why didn't it happen then? God didn't let it happen yet. Why? Because it was true. He is the Son of Man. He is the guy in Daniel's vision. He is the guy that has, was given authority to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pack up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. Could you imagine that scene? Now all of a sudden you got the Pharisees and scribes. Could you imagine the chatter? <laughs> did you hear that? Did you hear did you hear what he said? Did you Oh my goodness! He just called himself the Son of Man. Do you know what he's saying? And, I, and the whole time, were, and this is I love this about the way the chosen portrayed this. Because I think it would have been like me. If you told me to rise up and walk, pick up my bed and walk, this guy in the chosen team is like, Oh my goodness. He's like walking through the crowd and all this craziness is going on. And he's just like, this is amazing. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that, would have, that would have been an insane scene to see. You would have had the, the religious people, the church of their time, they were not the church, the churches, that was what Christ established, but what we would consider the church of their time, just, just their minds exploding because of what Jesus was saying. The crowds that were there, because they were already amazed at what they were seeing. And the guy that was paralyzed gets up and walks. 
I, I mean, you can't, you, you can't create that kind of chaos in your mind. I mean, that, that's, I can't even, boy, would I have loved to have been a fly on the wall to have seen what was going on in that day. I, I mean, it would have been the same. It, it would have been everything from, from the, uh, like I said, them wanting to drag Jesus out to, to kill him, to, all the way up to people just probably dancing and praising the Lord because of what they had just seen. I'm, I'm, I mean, you bring in a paralyzed guy in here and he gets up and walks. I'm, I mean, we're going to be doing some praising. We just are. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's just, uh, it would have been a crazy scene. Continuing on to page 100, it says, People came to Jesus for the miracles, but the miracles weren't the point. Healing the body demonstrated Jesus' power and his willingness to heal the heart. Up until that moment, teachers of the law believed in the power of the law. They assumed that obeying the Ten Commandments, along with the others, do's and don'ts that they piled on, not God, was the way to be forgiven and made new. But the problem was behaving our way to salvation is what we can't do. Is that we can't do it, I'm sorry. We can't not sin. That's exactly what I was talking about, my New Year's resolution that lasted less than 24 hours. In your own strength, we can't keep the law, not perfectly, not completely, not all of the time. And what, does, and what does Jesus, let's just stop there for half a second, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus really, really talks a lot about kind of the hot topics, even in the law. And what was one of, what was one of the takeaways from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was talking about the, about the law. That if you break one part of it, you have broken what? The entire thing. So we in our flesh are unable, we cannot obey the law perfectly. Because once you've made one mistake, you've offended the entire law. You, you know, and, that, and that's, that's another reason why I, this, the, the forgiveness and the sacrifice of Christ is so crazy cool. Because I now stand under grace and not under law. I think that was our last sermon with me up here before David came. Being under grace and not under law. Because we can uphold the law. And we're going to get that into our questions here in a second. But think, Paul addresses Why? The law brings what? Death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But for us to live, there had to be a better way. The law itself is absolutely perfect. We just don't keep it perfectly. We can't. As long as you have a choice, and you have the ability to make a wrong one, you're going to make it. But why is, that's why Jesus is so important. That's why the sacrifice of Christ is so important. It's because even though we are required to, to strive to, to uphold the law, to, to honor the law that's written on our hearts, you're going to mess it up. You just are. But because of Jesus, you're not condemned by that law. You're not experiencing death because of that law. You're experiencing a life that has been given to you through Christ. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's some amazing stuff. It just is. Uh, like the Israelites, we wander away from God who loves us. 
like the Israelites, including Mary, Nicodemus, Matthew, and Simon, the reason, if, if you, the reason we're talking about them is they're kind of the four we're looking at in the entire study. We need an overhaul of the system, one that depends on Jesus' goodness instead of our own. So let's look at Mary Magdalene. She is the quintessential picture of being made new. She was demon-possessed and governed by darkness and all the shame and isolation that came with it. She had zero ability to make herself presentable to God, but in an instant she was healed. Her body and heart transformed. Mary was a wreck. I mean, she would have had to have been. Like I said, we, you know, the church has really tried, when I say the church, I'm not talking even biblical scholars, have really tried to come to conclusions about who this lady is, what she did, was she a prostitute, was she a woman of wealth? I, I, I mean, there's, there's, nobody knows. But what we do know is she was possessed by demons. What do we know about people who are possessed by demons? That, that, their, that their life is tough. That, that, that their life has pain. Their life has damage. Their life has... Because any time that you have a demon, or even seven, calling the shots in your life, your life is a, a bad place. It just is. So what we do know about Mary, the, the, the one thing we absolutely know about Mary from the Bible is that even though she had these demons, when, when, she, when, when Jesus crossed her path, she was free. What else do we know? We, we see Mary popping up in the life of Christ all the way up and through the resurrection. So she was a follower. She was a disciple. She was a student. We also see in the Bible that she was one of the ladies that, that, that supported the ministry of Christ. How? We don't know. And that's, that's why in that scripture, some people say, well, she was a woman of wealth. She, she might not have been a woman of wealth. She may have weaved baskets for all we know, but we know that what she did, she did for the furtherance of the kingdom of God to support the ministry of Christ. So what we do absolutely know about Mary, and she, she was in a bad place. And after Jesus, she was in a good place. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. In, in fact, I'm going to take that even farther. It says he was a teacher of the law. What did Jesus call him in, in the third chapter of, of John when, when, when they met in the dark or at night? The teacher of Israel. That's, that's a little bit more than the teacher of the law. The, the teacher of Israel would have been basically a teacher of teachers. The teacher of Israel would have been one of the top dogs. He, he would have been... He would have been the guy that would have had in today's society probably five Bible PhDs. He, you know, this, this was the guy who taught teachers. He was the teacher of Israel. Make no mistake, Jesus didn't call him that willy-nilly. Well, Jesus called him that because that's what he was. You know, so he was, more, he was more than just a teacher of the law, but he was respected and esteemed for his righteous behavior and confident in his own wisdom at least until Jesus came into the scene. Truth is, attaining and maintaining one's own righteousness wouldn't, would have been an exhausting endeavor, even for a Pharisee. As Nicodemus witnessed the people around him being transformed, he couldn't help but to wonder who Jesus really was. Though, as Jesus said, the miracles made it pretty clear. So this Nicodemus guy, to me, he's one of the heroes of the faith. He, you know, that's, I'm also one of these you know, scholars go back and forth, well, did he become saved? Maybe he wasn't saved. I believe he absolutely was saved. I, I believe he did 
embrace Christ. Why? Because he was, he was one of the two foot guys that went and asked for the dead body of Christ. That would have ended his career. I'm sure it did end his career. It appears that he was wiped out of their records as even being existing. You, you know, and that was kind of common back then. You did the wrong thing and you got spanked. They, they, wiped, they wiped you out of existence in the records. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you never, you never mattered. You never existed. So I believe that, that Nicodemus actually was Nicodemus actually was a disciple at some point. Here's, here's the thing. And this is why Nicodemus for me is, is, is a hero of the faith. He would have been, like I said, the cream of the crop. He would have been the top dog. He would have had all the, the, the accolades. And like I said, in today's society, he would have had all the fancy degrees on the walls. But when he saw what was going on, he was brave enough to say, am I getting this right? <laughs> you know, he challenged. Remember earlier, I, I, it's, it's been a month since I've read this book. This wasn't a plan of what I said earlier, how I, I always challenge. You, you know, don't, don't ever assume that everything that, 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 that you that you hold to in the Bible is true. Challenge the fact that maybe read the Bible, be open to the Bible, to speaking to your heart that maybe you're wrong like I was, calling Jesus plan B. <laughs> you know, that always be open. That's what, that's what Nicodemus did. For him to say, come to Jesus, you know, in the, in the middle of the night, have, have this meeting in the middle of the night. I mean, he was definitely, he had to have been afraid that anybody was going to find out. But he was curious. He challenged, he challenged his own thinking. And, and what did he find out? He found out that he didn't understand it all. He didn't know it all. Uh, I mean, this whole born again thing. And you could see, you could see his thought process. And Jesus said, you've got to be born again. He's like, well, how can that be born again? The, 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 can I enter again in my mother's womb? You know, so, so what, what Jesus was saying didn't make any sense to him. But then Jesus... Jesus made the, the statement, you have to be born of, of, of flesh and, or water, depending on the, 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 the translation, and born of spirit. So you're born again isn't a, isn't a physical rebirth. Being born again is a spiritual rebirth. So even the sm probably the smartest guy in Israel, Jesus was saying, you need, to, you need to be alive spiritually. It's not enough to be alive physically. Just being alive physically. Like I said, the Bible sometimes refers to that as being born of flesh. Sometimes they talk about being born of water. You, you, you know, that, that's, those are two ways that that's portrayed a lot. Everybody, everybody's born of the flesh. But you have to be a disciple. You have to be a follower to be born of spirit. So, so Nicodemus challenged everything he'd ever known. He challenged everything he was ever taught, everything that he had ever taught when he met with Jesus that night, and he found out he didn't have it completely right. And, and I'm not beating up Nicodemus for that. The, 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 the reality is, the, the truth of Jesus is something that has to be revealed to you by spirit. You can't come to the knowledge of Christ without God revealing himself to you. I mean, that's, that's why no one comes to the Father unless he does what he draws them. He has to reveal himself to us and through Christ.
So it's, I'm, not beating up, I'm not beating up Nicodemus for what he thought before Jesus because he was doing everything he thought was right. He was working hard the way he thought was right. But God did what God does. He revealed the truth of who he is and what his plan was. And because he asked for the dead body of Christ, I am absolutely convinced that, that, that he embraced that change and that he was different. I don't know what his life would have been like. Even if he was, even if he was continued to be a, the teacher of Israel up until that moment of the crucifixion of Christ, what, what, had, what would his life been like? Doing the same old thing the way he always did it? Knowing in his heart that this maybe isn't quite, quite what God had planned? You know, that would have been a tough place, you know, for two or three years to, 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 kind, of, to kind of live and walk. But he, I, I think he came through. Matthew wasn't the first disciple called. Perhaps, his, his, perhaps he witnessed Jesus' power, the physical transformation of the paralytic and the inward transformations of people like Mary and Simon. Perhaps in spite of his apparent indifference towards others, he was just plain sick of himself. Perhaps Matthew longed to be made new. We don't know. You know, the writer of this, this study is, 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 the writer of this study is, is, is throwing out possibilities. I'm not saying that the writer's wrong. It might have been any or all of these things. But again, let's go back to what does the Bible say? That Jesus passed by his booth, and he says, Matthew, follow me. And he did. Why did he do that? I, I mean, it could be all of these things. He may have seen some of the stuff that Jesus has been do doing. He may have heard some of the stuff that Jesus was doing. But sometimes it, it, it could have been as simple as, the Spirit revealing to Matthew who Jesus was, and he responded. You know, I've told my story about salvation at Fishnet. I grew up in church. I thought I was a good dude. I thought I was doing all the churchy stuff. I thought I was doing all the heavenly stuff. It wasn't until that moment at Fishnet when I went down to the prayer tent, John Jacobs and the power team, after they flexed their muscles and did all the stuff that amazed me as a young man, the uh, and they were they, they talked about the need of the Holy Spirit and they talked about the day of Pentecost and, and when the call was made to me like it was made to Matthew I just naturally stepped up God revealed Himself to me and I responded it may have been that simple with Matthew I don't know we don't know but I'll tell you what you know something that the series really plays on that could have been very, that would have been very likely. Matthew's life, even though he would have had all the stuff in the world that he would have needed, he was a tax collector. I mean, he would have been, he would have, he, he was probably, not many, not many Jews were willing to be tax collectors because you were considered a traitor, but, he, you know, but they were very wealthy. I, I mean, basically Rome, the way Rome would do this is Rome would say, that, that okay, Charles owes me twenty-five thousand dollars. Well, the tax collector could say, "You owe fifty thousand dollars in taxes." Well, guess who got to keep the other twenty-five thousand? Matthew, or any of the tax collectors. So not only were these tax collectors, especially if you were a Jew, betraying your people because you were a tax collector, you were you were making your own money off of your people. 
I mean, Matthew would have been Matthew would have been literally the most hated person probably in the, in, in all of in the entire city because he was a traitor and he was he he was using God's own people for his own benefit. You know, so maybe he was getting sick of, you know, in the series. This would have been more likely how it went. Matthew tried to go back to talk to his his his, his Abba and Ema, his his his, his mom and dad, dad and mom. And his dad was like, you're no longer my son. You know, that would have been probably how that really would have gone. Because no, no self-respecting, godly-fearing Jewish person would have continued to claim their tax collector son who was, who, was, who was, I mean, just raking God's people over the coals for his own benefit. You know, so why? Maybe he had some connection where he was feeling bad about that. Maybe he was feeling just... just an emptiness inside. You, you, he would have had to have felt an emptiness inside. How can you be living a life in such darkness and not feel an emptiness inside? But regardless of what it is, Jesus went by his booth, said, Matthew, follow me. And he did. And I tell you, it's, I'm, I'm glad that he did because I'll tell you something about a tax collector or anybody that deals with... with with finances, especially with if, if Rome audits your books and you're and you're kind of trying to short them, they would they would kill you. The, that makes you somebody who probably keeps very meticulous records. <laughs> you, you know, so when we we see all the biggest pieces of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, you know, so that's one of the reasons why I'm so confident that that's kind of the that's the way it was presented because Matthew would have kept a pretty meticulous record of the things that he had seen and heard. You, you know, it, it's it's crazy stuff. But Simon, who Simon is Peter, Simon Peter, was experiencing major changes in his heart and life after coming to Jesus. They, they were all all weren't at once. Throughout the New Testament, we continue to see spiritual growth in Simon Peter's life as he learned the new way of living and being. But the major difference between Simon and the religious leaders like Nicodemus was that Simon was no longer trying to be good on his own strength. Instead, he was following Jesus and depending on him for direction, wisdom, and the ability to remain. Uh, he was also allowing his relationship with Jesus to fundamentally change him from the inside out. It's clear... And also reassuring that our New Testament brothers and sisters were at different levels of growth regarding their faith in Jesus. Indeed, transformation occurs slowly in some and faster in others, depending on the circumstances or seasons of life. But Jesus is patient with each of us because he knows that when God declares and saves and proclaims, no one can turn it back. Isaiah 43, 11 through 13. Peter He's one of my favorite people in the in the, in the probably the entire Bible. You know this this is Peter's the one. If, if you really watch the interactions between Peter and John, especially, it's almost comical. It was like it, it was like you, you know a, a parent's two favorite kids, you know, fighting for I'm I'm dad's favorite or I'm mom's favorite. You, you know that was kind of the thing that was going on. Even when you know even at one point, you know when Jesus pointed at the Last Supper that somebody was going to betray me, and, and, and Peter was like, I don't know who it is. You know, so what, what did he do? He said, he had told John, he says, ask Jesus who it's going to be. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, so we, we, see this, we see this really interesting 
you know, uh, we see this really inter inter interesting, you know, interactions between John and Peter. But Peter, he was he was he was a wild man. Uh, I mean, if I saw Jesus walking on the water, would I have had the mozzi? Would I had the guts to say, Jesus, let me come to you? Not me. I would have. It would have just been. It would have just been the automatic assumption in my head that, oh yeah, that's something Jesus can do. But you know, that's that's fine. You know, he can come on in this boat. I'm staying in this boat. You know, that would be me. You know, but for Peter to say, hey, bid me to come out, Jesus, have me come on out. That's pretty. That's that's some pretty crazy stuff. The arrest of Jesus. You, you know the, the the for me that is that that shows exactly how all in Peter would have been. You know, in one of the Gospels, I think it may have been John. It, it talks about it, it says a. And I've talked about this. I, I need to put this up and write this down so I can just whip this off on the top of my head. It says a, a some word of of soldiers came for Christ. Well, that some word. I think it was used in John. Um, what it's what it meant to the Roman military was it would have been a thousand, you know. So literally, a, a you know, we see these pictures of of Christ in in, in, in their movies, in their plays, where five or six guys are coming to to take Jesus, you know, with with Judas, and and that's that's because of that word that was used, and I think it's in John. I'll look it up, and I'll, next week I'll tell you this is, this is the word. It literally means a thousand soldiers. An army literally came after Christ. But what did, what did Peter do? Did, did, he, did he get all wigged out and, and shirked you know, by the sheer number of force? No, he whipped out his sword, and he's going after him. And he takes the ear off of, 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 of the, the prayer. I guarantee he wasn't trying to cut his ear off. He's trying to split his noggin right down the middle. You know, so you know, so this Peter, the same Peter to say, "Hey, I want to walk out. I want to walk out on the water." Is ready because, at that moment, he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's he's the one that the Father has sent. He is ready to take on a thousand Roman soldiers with his sword. <laughs> I, I mean, that's 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 a that's a that's a wild thing. That really, really is. Because especially because Rome had a reputation of being very good at what they did. <laughs> you know, and and, and that's. But we see in different places, like the, the book says, we see people in different places. And we even see the beautiful picture of, and this is the th cool thing about the denial of Peter, not that there's anything that cool about being Jesus denying Christ. You, you know, this shows how literally one moment we could be ready to take on the Roman army, and 12 hours later, we're denying even knowing Christ because sometimes when life happens, I'm sure what was happening in Peter's mind, and again, this is just my, my, my belief, I'm sure what was happening in Peter's mind, this is the time, this is the moment, because the, 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 the Hebrew people have been taught for years, again, just because that's what you were taught doesn't mean that that's what it is. The Hebrew people were taught for years that Messiah was going to be this, this warrior guy that was going to come and free them from their oppressor. Well, well, he did, but it wasn't their human oppressor like they were expecting. I'm sure in Peter's mind, it was like, this is the time. It's Jesus' time. This is it. It's now. It's now. Go, 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 go. And he was ready. And then when Jesus went off and, and, and probably some type of shackle or handcuff, 
that would have that would have been like what just happened here sometimes does when life hits you with something that you weren't expecting just like the arrest of Christ for Peter does it then make you wonder what just happened is god really in control does he really see does he really know? So he would have had to have been disoriented about this whole thing. For three years, he was probably preparing for that moment he thought was going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it didn't go down the way he expected it. It didn't. Jesus got taken off. And there was something that was really cool that happened there. And I've missed it for years and years and years. And somehow I didn't even see this until I was in seminary. It's embarrassing that I followed the Lord for almost 30 years and never saw this in Scripture. I read it and it just didn't occur to me. When, right after all this, all this stuff was going on, everybody that was there, that was, was through the power of God, was knocked back. They were, Phew! so what was Jesus, what was the Spirit saying? What was God saying? You're not going to take Jesus unless Jesus lets you take him. It didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't have nothing to do with what Peter was thinking he was going to do. But Jesus, the, the Father was still showing, the Spirit was still showing, nobody takes Jesus unless Jesus lets himself go. And now picture that scene. I said, read, read it in John. I'm, I'm not, this, is, this depiction of this happening occurred in John. Read, read the rest of Jesus in John. They were blown back. Picture that scene. What if you're one of these thousand guys, you know, Roman, Rome's, you know, soldiers that, 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 did, that just tore through their enemies like they were nothing, and all of a sudden you're going to take this one little guy and his little band of rebels, not that they were rebels, but let's look at their perspective, this one little guy and a couple of his followers, you know, this, this would have been like, this would have been almost laughable, why, why are we even walking all the way out here? And then, and they fell back. Would that have caught your attention? What just happened here? And we see other soldiers that got it. What happened when, when Jesus died and the earthquakes happened and the people were coming out of their tombs and all this stuff was coming? What, what did another Roman say? Another Roman soldier at the foot of the cross. Surely this must have been the Son of God. <laughs> you know? Wow. Wow. It's, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. But all these people were in different places. I'm going to stop taking my glasses on off. All these people were in different places. Peter was in a high place and very quickly went to a low place. John, I'll tell you the, the, the three folks that I think were the most spiritually mature at the... At the at the time of the crucifixion, was John, mother of the Mary of Je the, the Mary the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, or Mary the Magdalene, Mary from Magdalene, whatever you want to call it. Why is that? When everybody else was disillusioned and scattered, three stood at the foot of the cross. His mother, his friend Mary, and his friend John. 
that's that's spiritual maturity right there this says it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what i'm seeing right now i know who he is that's spiritual maturity that regardless of how dark this moment is, I know who he is. That's spiritual maturity. That, that when your world is rocked, you still know who he is. And I don't think that there's any, I don't think it's by any accident that the only disciple that, 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 that we're aware of that didn't die a really bad death, I mean bad death, being sawed in half, pulled apart by horses, crucified, all, all these, they, they, they went through, one was lucky enough and just got killed by the sword. But a lot of these disciples died in really ugly ways. Who's the one that, that we have no record of doing anything else other than retiring and in, 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 in his, uh, <laughs> in, in, in off on the island? John, the guy that stood at the foot of the cross. I think Jesus doesn't notice loyalty. I think he does. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is even when we're not loyal to him, he's still loyal to us. That's, that's my cool Jesus. Yep. Actually, before we dig in any further, we'll, it's actually uh, 9.58. So let's just go ahead and pray. And let's, 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 just, let's just ponder just for a second the coolness of Christ, the coolness of my Father. Before we pray, everything we've looked at, our Father is a God who makes covenants with us, formal agreements where He will stand with us. He makes covenants with us that he knew that we couldn't hold up our end of the bargain. So just like he did with Abraham and just like he did with Christ, he put the whole weight of the covenant on his own shoulders. We follow a Jesus who came out of heaven, walk in flesh, to live his last three years a homeless person going from place to place led by the Spirit and who eventually died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the Jesus that we serve. And, uh, the, 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 the person who the new covenant rests on his shoulders, he didn't let you down. And the Holy Spirit that helps us and works with us to try to keep up our end of the bargain, but when we fall short, helps lift us up. Not in a condemning way, but in a convicting way. That's, that's, that's a cool God, folks. That's a cool God. That's a God that's easy to follow. So let's pray to that God. Father, we just, we appreciate you for who you are. God, I don't see what you see in us. I get what your word says. I get your word says that you created us in your image. But beyond that, I, I, I don't get it. And that's what's really cool, that my place has nothing to do with my perception. My place has to do with your gift and your truth. God, we take comfort 
in the fact that we are not who others say we are. We take comfort in the fact that we are who you say we are. What you have called us to be, sons and daughters of the Most High, what you've called us to be, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it doesn't matter who says what or to whom they say it, it's what you say that matters. God, and we thank you for that. We thank you that our salvation and our station in life is dependent on you and not ourselves. Thank you for putting us in that place. Thank you for showing favor to a people who are not deserving of your favor. Thank you for showing grace to a people who are not worthy of your grace. Thank you for gifting us those who follow Christ with the righteousness of Christ, so that when you see us, you don't see our ugliness. You see the righteousness of your Son. God, that's, that's a huge blessing. God, we thank you for going the distance with us. You didn't meet us halfway. You came all the way here. And you did all the work. And we thank you for being that kind of God. We love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.